This episode is dedicated to High Style Lifestyle, Layla Mickelson, Chris Barnes, and Blayberg Shikoma, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters, and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Ryan. And this is Fight Study. On this fight study, we have someone many of the listeners have been requesting, journalist and boxing writer, Ryan Sangalia. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Sam, thank you very much for having me on. I've, it's really, truly an honor. I'm a big fan and uh, I'm really uh, appreciative of all the work that you do. Thank you for saying that. So before we get into any specific fight talk, let's get to know you better. How did you start as a journalist and a reporter? You know, um, actually, the way I started was I was a message board troll um, <laughs> at this one boxing uh, forum. And so I got like banned a bunch of times. And so, I mean, this is the real story. I, I, I would send in like these little like kind of like what I like my, the best that I could approximate a boxing like news story. I would have someone post it for me in the message boards under my real name while I was like banned, right? So I could still have a presence in the message board. And uh, I think like the owner of the site, which is like one of the biggest boxing news sites in the world now, um, he saw my stuff and he was just like, yeah, I'm going to actually offer Ryan a job. Uh, so yeah, like I was 19 years old. I, I was basically like, I was about to drop out of college at that point because I wasn't feeling it so much. And I said, all right, I think I'm just going to do this boxing writing thing. And it was almost like, uh, like boxing writer, like cosplay for me for a while. Like I was like faking it till I made it for real. Like I, I don't think anyone realized a, how young I was or B that I was living in like a one room shack, you know, on my own. Uh, and I really had nothing going on for me other than like, I was starting out to become a boxing writer, but I always had a passion for it. Um, boxing very much so saved my life when I was a um, teenager and I was 
going through a lot of problems. Like I was a juvenile delinquent and, you know, I was in and out of like juvenile detention and group homes and, uh, boxing, uh, sort of gave me direction in my life. And writing had always been there ever since I was a kid. It was like the one thing, like writing and reading were the, like, the two things I had going for me as a kid. And I sort of combined those two and, uh yeah it's been 15 years now i've been boxing writer so did you do this kind of backwards where you were a writer first and then you went to school to learn about writing and journalism yeah actually i didn't even want to uh i mean i should probably rephrase that i i did i i wasn't planning to go to graduate school um but i said you know why not let's let's give it a try and i i kind of entered when i signed up to go to um the, you know, the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, you know, CUNY grad school. Uh, I, I was kind of, you know, I, I, I was cautiously optimistic because I um, don't have an undergrad degree. Uh, I, I dropped out of college there and then I went back a few years later. And then I dropped out again when I was, I think, like 23 or 24 because I got a gig at the Daily News um, writing about the Golden Gloves, which was funny because I was sort of like, you know, quote unquote, the pro. And then they had um, an intern who took half of the other Golden Glove dates. And the intern was the same age as me. You know what I mean? So it was like, it was kind of strange. Like I, I was sort of like teaching this intern, you know, I think he went to like Northern Michigan or Michigan State or something like that. And I was teaching him like some of the tricks of, of the trade, but he was the same age as me. But I had like five years of, ex of experience at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I did it backwards. And uh, I was only the second person, I think, um, that was uh, admitted to that school without an undergrad degree. The reason why is, you know, I had like a lot of experience at that point, but I also had sort of like outstanding circumstances regarding, you know, I, I had been in the Philippines uh, for four years working at a news outlet called Rappler. And then I had to leave because of, you know, threats against press freedom. And some of those threats were more than just against press freedom. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's sort of why I had to leave the Philippines. Uh, that's, that's exclusive. I've never told that anywhere publicly. But, um, yeah, that's sort of how I got into grad school. And I finished uh, in December with my master's. So do you feel like grad school helped you at all as a journalist and writer? Uh, yeah, I would say because um, it taught me like a few other things like how to do premiere, how to edit. And write uh, like news packages, uh, like for TV and radio. But more so than that, it, it got me out of my comfort zone because, you know, the first few stories I tried to pitch to like, you know, uh, my first class were like boxing stories. I felt comfortable there, but like, no, we want you to do like reporting like outside of boxing, which I can do, but you know, it's it takes a little work. I can I can write a boxing story in my sleep, um, but you know, writing about say like you know a primary election and you know what the agendas are, you know, things like that and changes to like, you know, alternate side parking, whatever that is, you know, that, that takes a little bit of, you know, thought for me. Uh, so yeah, but also I, I met some amazing people at school and, uh, I got to collaborate with other people and, you know, and I, I just, I, I got to sort of stamp myself as more than just a boxing reporter, even though, you know, like that's always been my main forte, but you know, I've done other stuff besides that. Is writing sort of like acting where you can get typecast or is it easier to write about more than one topic? Like you became known as a boxing writer, but is it pretty easy then to break out of that and write about other topics? Or do you find some resistance where people are like, I don't know if I want you to write about this other thing because you're a boxing guy. 
Um, you know what's funny is that used to be the case for me. Like I would pitch stories like to outlets or like you know about real stuff and you're like, yeah, that's nice, but I want to talk about your boxing stories. I'm like, wait, 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 I, but I have this idea here about like you know an election thing going on and there's this important issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about the next packet? Uh, so that was sort of the issue before, but the irony now is that I probably write more about non-boxing stuff. I, I you know, I've done a lot of work for uh, a news outlet in Queens called Queens Post, uh, where I write about, you know, alternate side parking and those kinds of things, uh, you know, changes to like a bridge or something, you know, there's a fire in Woodside, you know, that, that sort of stuff, you know, more, uh, than, you know, and, and, and actually Vice, believe it or not, Vice, um, they knew about my boxing reporting and, you know, lately I've done a lot of boxing writing for Vice, but, um, when I interned there, uh, in the summer of 2020, I was, um, you know, when Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, it was really the headline, you know, I got to cover like the Black Lives Matter, um, protests in Queens, which were not getting as much attention as say the ones in Brooklyn and Manhattan and, you know, um, so I got to go to some of the more like conservative, like really right wing areas of, you know, the outer borough, uh, you know, places like Bayside and Middle Village, where, you know, those are Trump country uh, and, and and sort of write about, you know, the people who were leading um, the Black Lives Matter movement in, in those areas. So uh, I've done a lot of stuff outside of boxing, but, you know, my heart will always be boxing. That's 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 the that uh, that shaped me as, as a child and kind of gave me a different perspective about life. And uh, it really speaks to who I am as like, you know, just a small town kid from, you know, Cliffside Park, New Jersey, you know, grew up working class and, you know, sort of like the interests, you know, I, I, I may be out, you know, here or there, I may have traveled around the world, but I'm really just a working class proletariat guy with proletariat <laughs> interests. <laughs> so you said it used to be that you were typecast. So was it grad school then that you think opened up more doors to allow you to write about other things and be kind of like a beat reporter? Or do you think it was basically legacy newspapers collapsing and they just needed freelance writers to cover all sorts of topics? Uh, probably a little both actually, because uh, you know, I, I think when all of, like the old time, like writers who really you know knew their beats, sort of like took buyouts. Like, all right, fine, let's give the boxing guy a chance. <laughs> uh, yeah, he could write about you know whether or not you know they're gonna build the bridge or something. <laughs> so, what is it like being a boxing writer and freelance journalist? Is it constantly hustling for writing gigs? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's, um, I think, you know, there is this, for some people who, you know, grew up watching movies like Almost Famous, like, you know, movies about journalism, even like stuff like Spotlight, you know, that, that are a little bit more recent. Like, it's not, it, it may look like glamorous, important work. And, you know, and it is important, you know, I think, because you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, some of the most vulnerable workers that, you know, we're talking about like you know a workers' movement. There's nothing more vulnerable than, than like you get punched in the head for money. Um, you're, you're selling your brain cells in essence. It's it's it is important work, um, but it's like it's not glamorous. A lot of times it's you know you're you're sitting in front of a laptop. And there were times when I was 19, 20 years old, and I was getting invited out to like parties, and I couldn't go because I had to write you know about like Arturo Gotti's you know farewell fight or something like that. You know what I mean or I had to, you know, interview like some guys, you know, trying to fight in the Olympics. 
it, it, it was, you know, there were, there was a lot of sacrifice involved, but, um, it's, it, it, it's fun. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I got to go to cover a lot of Pacquiao fights and, uh, I, I'll tell you a funny story. Like I don't get like starstruck when I see Pacquiao anymore. Cause I've you know, been around him so many times, but like my dad, uh, is a huge Pacquiao fan. I'm Filipino. Um, my dad is, you know, born and raised in Leyte, Philippines. And, uh, I remember when he went over, uh, Pacquiao, I think was getting ready. I want to say for like, uh, I forget who he was fighting. It was in 2018. Uh, oh no, it was 2017. And my dad, like, you know, it was like, yeah, it's nice to see you, Ryan. We're in the Philippines. And then like, I'm like, Hey, you want to go stop by the gym and see Pacquiao? So like, we waited for a couple hours and, and like, my dad was so happy. I'd never seen my dad smile like that. Not even like when I graduated. Like, <laughs> yes. That's nice. You graduate. Oh, Manny Pacquiao, get out of here. You know, take my photo. Um, so like, that was kind of cool, uh, to do that for my dad. Um, I have a, I have a rule. I don't care what a boxer or anyone says to me. Like, you know, like people tell me to fuck myself all the time. It's cool. But like, <laughs> um, like I always say, like fight week at, at a top ranked show doesn't start until Bob Aaron tells me to fuck myself. But, um, <laughs> but, but if you, as long as you're cool to my family, I don't, you know, you're good in my book. Now, can you get a job where you could spend some time on a story, like really dive in and prepare something long form, or is that few and far between? Uh, you know, I'm very thankful. I've been at the Ring Magazine now since my tenth year, and they've allowed me to do that, where I can kind of pick my subjects, and they sort of trust me to know what a story is. And uh, I got like an honorable mention. You know, I got robbed. You know, I still won the first prize. Uh, but I, I got an honorable mention for one story I wrote. I think in 2015 uh, about uh, this. Uh, you know, just looking at uh, a ring death from the perspective of um, the fighter, you know, who survives and, and how they deal with it and what the, um, you know, and just con con contrasting these two very different people, like this one Filipino fighter from the province who, you know, has no choice but to fight. And then this, you know, other guy from Australia who, you know, about to graduate law school and didn't really have to fight, but he liked it, he loved it. Um, you know, I, I, they, they, that's not like a big name story, but if you put some work into it, you can really tell a compelling story. And I thought I did okay with that one. But um, a lot of times, like, you know, I like to go deep dive into like Filipino boxing, you know, which is sort of, you know, when you talk about Filipino sports and Filipino culture, it's, it's sort of insular. It doesn't really get out um, outside of, you know, America, outside the Philippines. Like, like even when people are talking about Pacquiao or they're talking about the big name fighters, the Americans don't get it. You know, they really don't. They've never, I don't think, taken the time to understand how different the culture is. Uh, you know, we get this Americanized version of, you know, a Filipino story. So, like, when people talk about Pacquiao running for president, they never talk about Pacquiao. Like, oh, Pacquiao could be the president. Yeah, they don't talk about Pacquiao being, like, fifth or sixth in the polls. You know, like, or how difficult it would be for a first-term senator who you know, doesn't come, you know, Manny has money like from fighting, but doesn't come from like, you know, a, a, a dynasty family uh, to then put together a coalition, uh, you know, and, and, and establish the infrastructure needed to, to win, you know, not just Mindanao, but also then win, uh, you know, Visayas and Luzon, you know, you don't, you don't see that sort of stuff. Like, so I, I don't think the Americans really get it. So I, I get to kind of go into that, like, my experience, I lived in the Philippines for a number of years um, as an adult, and I covered the Philippine boxing scene. Like, 
you know, German Ancajas, who is the, IB, he's the IBF junior bantamweight champion, he became like, you know, kind of like the talk of the town, like in 2017, 2018, when he became world champion. Uh, but I was covering him like 2012. Like, you know, I, uh, he was training at the same gym I was training at. And I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. Like, let me write about him and get, kind of get his story. And, and Don Nietes, he was a guy who like, you know, I think fourth division world champion. I think uh, only him, Pacquiao, Donaire, whatever, done that in the Philippines. Uh, and and he's, only, he's a guy who's only caught on recently, but he's been a champion for like 10 years. But I was able to write about him over there and sort of understand, uh, and, not, and not just looking at the story from like the, the perspective of like poverty porn, but, you know, really how, um, you know, this is, you know, a systemic thing in the Philippines and, and how this poverty to boxing pipeline works. Um, you know, those are the kinds of stories that I, I, don't, I don't think uh, um, a lot of other people get right. Um, that's what I'm, that's sort of what I'm doing, you know? So even though it's a poor country, would you say the training level in the Philippines for boxing is very high? In some regards, sure. Like, I think that the number one thing, um, is that there is, um, there's a culture of it. It's an acceptance. People understand that, okay, boxing is this very vital thing that, you know, you can, you could fight your way literally out of poverty. They've seen other fighters do it, like Pacquiao. Before that, Flash Lorde, his family, is, you know, uh, is still doing well. Uh, you know, about 30, 40 years after his death, you know, based off of the work that he d- did in the ring. Um, there, you know, I, I think that there are some issues in terms of uh, ring generalship that uh, aren't really uh, highlighted the way that they should be, uh, like cutting off the ring. If you look at fighters like Pacquiao and Last night, forget about it, John Real Casimiro, like, uh, yeah, he beat Guillermo Rigondeaux, but, you know, basically because Rigondeaux, you know, decided, hey, I'm going to move around and not really try to throw punches and win the fight. Um, you know, if, I think if, if John Real Casimiro was able to step over to his left and when, when Rigondeaux was going out to his right and, and, and throw a double left hook, you know, head and body, yeah, he probably would have stopped him, you know, at, at some point in that fight because Rigondeaux had nothing offensively. Uh, but otherwise, um, you know, if you look at, you know, the great boxer, boxer with great jabs, you know, and I think, you know, the jab is, uh, you know, underutilized, not just in the Philippines, but, you know, in boxing in general, like, I think Roy Jones was the guy who kind of said, you don't really need a jab if you're fast enough. Yeah. But you know what? You're only fast. You're only that fast for about five years of your life. And then you have to kind of be immortal and, you know, if you throw power punches without a jab, you're going to get cracked in the mouth. Um, you know, so like. I think that, you know, Donny Nietes and, and, and German Ancajas are fighters with great jabs. Uh, but, you know, you don't see a whole lot of other guys that are, you know, throwing great jabs like that and setting up their boxing. So there, I think there's some, uh, there is some room for uh, improvement. But I think that when, you know, Pacquiao kind of opened up the, and, I, you know, and let me give credit, Jerry, Jerry Penalosa, you know, former world champion uh, of a few years, like actually a couple decades ago, uh, had an amazing jab. Uh, so. Otherwise, um, I think that there's some room for improvement. I think you're going to see more of an Americanization of Filipino fighters as more of them come to America. The way that you see with like Mexican fighters, like like I, I couldn't believe when like um, guys like Marco Antonio Barrera and Juan Manuel Marquez were like, you know, pretty like solid counter punchers as opposed to like back in like the 70s and 80s. And you saw like all these like all out Mexican brawlers. That's not the way it is anymore. There's there's this you know, melting of like the 
of the styles that, you know, makes for, you know, more dynamic uh, and versatile fighters. So do you ever get a break or is it 24-7 in boxing? Oh, I never get a break. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I get a break where I, where I can, you know, like, uh, I mean, but it's, I mean, you have to because I remember when I first came to Ring Magazine, I was on fire. I was just like, listen, I got a point to prove. We're going to be number one. Um, I'm going to show these people and, you know, we're going to take this over. And then like, you know, after a few years, I'm like, okay, like I have to like find a way to like live a, like, a meaningful and productive life outside of being uh, a writer. And uh, let me pick my stories a little bit better. And instead of just chasing like, because writing in general is a drug. I don't care what anyone says. It's crack. To me, it's crack. You know, not that I, you know, like, but for me, it's like, I write a story and I publish it and then I get a high and I'm like, oh, I did something cool. But then that high only lasts so long. And then you're like, oh man, like the, the buzz wore off. I need to go. I'm, you're chasing that high constantly. So yeah, I, I that's sort of how I, it is for me. I don't know for other people, but um, there's no, you know, there's no greater di- addiction to me than writing. And uh, if I'm if I'm not writing, I'm not a happy person. So it sounds like you like that type of constantly writing a lot of volume instead of like not writing anything and just working on one book, let's say. I mean, I wish I had the patience to work on a book. Like I, people say, right, I need to write a book. Like, you know, I, I had a few ideas for different stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, and when I did some, long, I, I'll tell you, like one of the writers that I mentored, like straight out of college, just a uh, uh, very talented uh, basketball reporter by the name of Naveen Gunglani, um, he wrote a book. You know, and I was just like, man, like the writers that I'm mentoring, you know, are writing books. And but for me, it's like I need that constant like, all right, I did some good work and I'm publishing it. And now let me see what the fallout is. And let me see, like, whose buttons I pushed, who's going to put me on a hit list this week, uh, that sort of thing. Where like even like writing for the magazine, like, you know, I, I write for the Ring magazine. It's hard for me to wait for that story to come out. And I want, hey, everyone, go buy the magazine. I want everyone to read my stuff. I want, you know, I, I, I want to be in the public domain. Like, I want, you know, like, I, uh, sometimes, like, being behind a paywall, even if it's just, like, you know, buy the magazine so we can continue publishing, that could be hard for me. We've done a show talking about top boxing scandals with Matt Hunter. But recently, we had another scandal with the WBA that might have made that list if we had done it now. Can you tell us what happened? Well, first off, it's not so much what the WBA did. I mean, the WBA is, is itself a scandal. <laughs> that it exists, that it exists is proof of corruption and just, I mean, the, this organization is just shamelessly, like cartoonishly corrupt. You understand? Like if I always say that the greatest boxing documentary ever was The Great White Hype. I don't know if you saw that with Damon Wayans and mm-hmm. uh, it's like so like over the top, but that's actually true. It's like, you know what I mean? It's, it, it's like, so the WBA is so on the nose that if you invented it for a movie, they would say, no, this is, no one could be this corrupt. This is, you know, so you can't parody it. No, you can't. It, it, we're we're going to talk about that. I, and I have like a hundred things that I hate about the WBA. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that they're everything that's wrong with boxing. I mean, the other sanctioning bodies, don't get me wrong, they're pretty bad too. The WBC, the uh, the WBO, you know, had a recent thing where they tried to actually like 
put a purse bid where the the challenger, the mandatory challenger, will get more than the champion. You know, I mean, just all sorts of garbage that we see from these sanctioning bodies. But the WBA, uh, in, in a corrupt and treacherous world, are uniquely horrible. So, like. I'm trying to compose myself because I'm so upset still about the whole thing that happened. Michael Fox got robbed so bad in a fight against Gabriel Gabriel Maestre, right? So Maestre is a WBA-connected fighter. He's from Venezuela, two-time Olympian. And he got the ears boxed off of him by Michael Fox, who boxed the fight of his life. And then they robbed him. But they didn't just rob him. They robbed him by scores that were so wide uh, so as to like make it seem like he wasn't even competitive in the fight um so a boxing writer uh whom i respect you know greatly not just because he's my friend Corey erdman he compiled a list of the racist tweets that one uh, of the judges had written over the years uh uh, her name is gloria martinez rizzo she's been suspended indefinitely i believe by the wba but you know they're going to wait until this whole thing blows over and then they'll sneak her back in. Yeah, you know, that's the, the way they always do. Um, but she was, you know, not just MAGA, like, but like Proud Boys kind of, you know, like calling like M- Michelle Obama a monkey on Twitter and just horribly racist and just tasteless m- messages. Um, and then uh, these tweets happen to be found at a time where. She like you know flagrantly robbed a black fighter of a fight that she, you know he should have won, and by a score of one seventeen one eleven, which is just <laughs> not even in the realm of possibility. Uh, and the WBA, you know, as shameless as they are, they're like, yeah, we're gonna issue a um, a mandatory uh, rematch uh, because the fight was close. The fight wasn't close. <laughs> what are you talking about, right? So. Um, and then on top of that, you know, just to show how like, you know, much of a money grab this whole thing is, this is such a scandal. Uh, it, you know, they charged the fighter $10,000 to file a protest, you know? So it, it's just, there's just no class, no, and, and, and the thing is, is that the corruption of boxing isn't so much of a bug. It's like a feature now. Like we've been conditioned to accept how bad boxing is that it's you know irredeemable ir- you know it, it cannot be rehabilitated that it's just how it's going to be and you know i mean we we talk about like you know i mean since the beginning of boxing you know there's always been sort of like this these attempts to kind of control the outcomes you know uh not like so much like the way that it's choreographed like like pro wrestling uh, but just in the sense of, okay, matchmaking and, you know, like, you know, I can look at the card and I can tell, I can just tell from who's in what corner, who's going to win the fight, you know? So it's, uh, like so many times, like, like, like people have like, you know, I've seen people like try to bet with me. I'm like, don't let me take your money. Like it's, <laughs> I already know what's going to happen. You know I mean? There's very rare times when. I'm surprised by an outcome. Like, uh, if you really know what you're looking at, uh, you, you won't be surprised uh, 99.999% of the time in boxing. But, um, 
yeah, no, the WBA, I, people say, oh, you know, we should, you know, the association, American Association of Boxing, I forget what they call it, ABC, Association of Boxing Commissions, right, which is, you know, oversees the, uh, the various commissions that control boxing in different states and territories. So we're not going to, we're, we're, we're threatening to not sanction the WBA. I'm like, when does the FBI file a RICO case? <laughs> you know, that's what I want to know. Like, I've been saying this for years. Like, you know, why, you know, they, they took down Bob Lee, who was the founder of the IBF in 2001. They sentenced him, I don't know, I think like two years in prison, or a little bit less than two years in prison, you know, for, for selling rankings, right? You know, and it was pretty flagrant, you know, but now they do that with, they just, they just sanction like a regional belt and say it's, Oh yeah, and if you win this belt against your hand-picked opponent, you're the top five. That's selling a ranking. <laughs> like the boxing is so corrupt, I can't defend it. Now we just had the Olympics. Are there any boxers from this Olympics we should keep our eyes on? Yeah, I think there are a number of them. Um, and first off, I want to say that the IOC did the right thing by suspending uh, Aiba, which I call the uh, the WBA of amateur boxing. Um, like basically like, you know, the Aiba was suspended from overseeing Olympic boxing at this, uh, at the, at the Tokyo games because of, you know, they also are comically like, corrupt. I mean, you want to talk about corruption. Um, like Aiba, like had like, <laughs> one of the most amazing, uh, like scandals that kind of went on. Like it was a FIFA level scandal that no one cared about. <laughs> Because it was boxing, right? So uh, they, you know, installed this one guy as like, you know, the head, like, you know, of Aiba, you know, guy from Uzbekistan, uh, Gafur Rakimov, um, you know, who's accused of being, you know, a drug trafficker, um, which, you know, no one, <laughs> it kind of flew under the radar, but it was just like, yeah, boxing's so bad, but yeah, you know what? So what? There's a, you know, a drug trafficker, like, you know, organized crime leader running, you know, Olympic boxing. Um, but, you know, they had so many terrible scandals throughout the years. 2012 and 2016 were, you know, offensively bad, the judging. And, you know, I remember there was one one guy, I think he was running the 20, I want to say the 20, like, he was one of the main referees at the 2017 uh, Southeast Asian Games that, like, you know, he was like a, you know, he was like a like a B movie bad guy in terms of like how corrupt he was as a, as a referee, and I sort of wrote the stories of like you know the five worst robberies that this you know or you know injustices that this guy had uh, overseen, and it was pretty bad. But um, yeah, back to the point of uh, Olympic boxing. Who are the good fighters? Uh, oh, and the reason why we could say that who are the good fighters because you know the judging was a lot better without Aiba. But um, in twenty twenty one. I think that uh, uh, Jalalov, the uh, Uzbek heavyweight, uh, super heavyweight, who won the gold medal, uh, very sharp southpaw um, heavyweight boxer promoted by Ludabella. I think he's based out of Brooklyn now. Uh, you know, he's going to be a guy that he's going to be a, like, avoided in the pros because, you know, he's a heavy-handed southpaw who can box and he's tall. And until he gets with a big, you know, big-time, you know, dealmaker, no one's going to want to fight that guy. Uh, the middleweight, um, Yumir Marshall, who won bronze um, from the Philippines, um, I thought he, sh- you know, he w- had a real chance of winning gold. Something was off with his, you know, uh, in the semis, you know, his stamina wasn't what it should have been. But in the professionals, I think that once he kind of 
gets a you know an organized training camp, you know he's going to be a real you know serious fighter to contend with. The other Filipino who won silver in flyweight, um, Carlo Paalam, he's going to be a, a real handful in, in the pros. You know, very sharp, only twenty three years old. Uh, the guy who beat him, Galalia Fai, uh, out of Great Britain, he comes from a big boxing family. Um, his brother Kalia uh, Fai was a um, 2008 Olympian and was a IBF. No, was he IBF? No, he was a WBA. Uh, you know, there we go. Uh, junior bantamweight champion uh, in the pros. Very, very talented fighter. Um, and Gamalia Fai, his other brother, was a domestic champion. Um, otherwise, you know, Duke Reagan, uh, the American featherweight, and uh, you know, of course, Keyshawn Davis. Uh, the American lightweight; those guys are going to be world champions in the professionals, I believe. Uh, and any of the Cubans, you know, you take your pick. Any of them turn pro, uh, they're going to dominate the sport for the next decade. So, uh, but you know that 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 takes them, you know, leaving Cuba so that they can uh, pursue a professional boxing career. Um, you know, but you know, like like many others have done. I think I think Rigandiao took him like seven times trying to defect uh, before he finally was able to come over. But um, yeah, you take any of the four gold medalists and they're going to be a world champion in five fights. And this person wasn't in the Olympics, but he's a young fighter. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about him because a lot of the California locals always ask about him. And he's a boxer named Brandon Lee. Oh, yeah. How do you see his trajectory? Uh, he's young. He's 20, 22 years old, I think. Um, really good kid. Like, that's the that's one thing that like people don't realize, like. You know, when you're talking about marketing a fighter, this is you know a super smart, super bright young man, and I think he can really do some serious stuff. Um, and he has you know a very good like uh, professional, you know, amateur career at the national level. Uh, I, I remember get, just getting excited. Like the most excited I'd been for a fight was when he fought um, Camilo Prieto, and you know he, he stopped that guy in three rounds. But that was like right when all of like you know when the pandemic started. All the sporting events were shut down, and the only thing that was happening was like this one fight card on Showbox where they were there was no audience. They kept it going because like, yeah, hey, we already booked the thing, and we're on a, you know, we're on a reservation. We can kind of write our own rules. But like, uh, like it was like the sporting world turns its eyes to Brandon Lee <laughs> uh, on this pretty much insignificant uh, card. But um, it's you know he's got to step up, you know. Uh, he knocked the guy out last last night, you know, uh, who hadn't won in his last four fights. I want to see him in a real fight. And I know that Brandon Lee can step up because he's fought everyone, uh, you know, in America, you know, at, at the national level. So uh, I think they're taking it slow with him because of his age and they're hoping that he'll mature. But, um, you know, as 140, uh, maybe even like as a lightweight, if, if he can still get down there, but definitely he'll be a future welterweight. And I think that, He's a guy that you have to really keep your eye on because such an interesting personality and such, you know, he's a heavy handed puncher. Like he's, he scores knockouts and these are not like, oh, like, you know, standing, you know, standing, stop standing. He's, he knocks people out cold. A lot of fun to watch. He's going to be a lot of fun to watch for years to come. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show 
the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now on August 21st, Manny Pacquiao was supposed to fight Errol Spence. What happened to this fight? Um, well, it just shows how, like, you know, boxing, you know, I mean, it, you can't you can't say anything. That's a real serious injury. And, you know, I, I whenever we're talking about eye injuries, these are very serious. Um, Israel Vasquez, you know, who gave us so many entertaining wars throughout the years, you know, he has a glass eye now. And, you, you know, this is the price he's paid for all those wars that entertained us throughout the years. Um, so many fighters are blind, you know, from detached retinas that weren't properly healed. And, you know, the, yeah, this is not as serious. It, it seems it was a torn retina that was caught by a, a doctor as part of a routine, uh, mandatory, uh, checkup. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that, you know, Errol Spence's long-term health will not be jeopardized other, you know, more so than, you know, any boxing, fight, you know, is you know, jeopardizing your long-term health. Um, so that said, you know, boxing just has the worst luck, you know, in terms of fights falling out over so many different issues and Tyson Fury catching COVID and whatever, you know, the boxing has bad luck, but he, he had a, he had a torn retina, not a detached retina. Um, and he's out of the fight. Uh, and your Dennis Ugas, who was, uh, he was going to be in the co-main event. He is uh, going to be fighting Manny Pacquiao now, which is, you know, a great opportunity for him to make a lot of money. And this might be the last time we ever see Pacquiao because, you know, if Pacquiao, I don't know if Pacquiao is going to win the presidency. I, I don't, I wouldn't favor him. But if he does get on a ticket and, you know, he runs as the vice president, he might have a real shot, you know, because the vice president and the president are, uh, elected separately in the Philippines. Uh, so that, that might be the last time we ever see Pacquiao, unless he wants to be like, you know, the fighting, instead of the fighting senator, he'll be the fighting vice president or the fighting president. You know, like, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know the wisdom of like, you know, an elected head of state getting punched in the face on pay-per-view, but whatever, uh, you know, he, he kind of makes his own rules in you know, life. But um, yeah, this might be the last time we see Manny Pacquiao in the ring. And, you know, instead of it being, Errol Spence, which is supposed to be like this epic, you know, comic book like level like showdown. Yeah, you know, we're going to see him against you know a guy you know whose biggest win was losing to Sean Porter, <laughs> and a great and, and a fight that I thought he should have won, but whatever. And where is Mandy right now in his career? I mean, he's forty two years old. Uh, nothing makes me feel older than seeing Manny Pacquiao grazing his beard, because like you know I grew up watching Manny Pacquiao, like you know. Uh, when he won his first fight in America in 2001, like, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up reading the Filipino newspapers, you know, like the Filipino reporter, the Filipino express, like all the Filipino papers that, you know, in, in America, right. Like this, the ethnic media, uh, always like, you know, loved Pacquiao, you know, cause, and they would also get like the stories from like the big newspapers in the Philippines and like sort of write them and. Or like they would, they would run the stories from the Philippines. So I would hear about Pacquiao, but when he won the IBF 122 pound championship with a, you know, such a significant upset victory um, over um, 
Lelo Honolo Ladwaba, you know, rest in peace. You know, he, he, it was so big in America. I was, and I was like, in, a, in the Filipino community, I was like 14 years old. And, and then when he beat Barrera, like, that was like such a huge thing. Like, Marco Antonio Barrera was like, really like the heir to Julio Cesar Chavez, you know, in, in terms of just like badass Mexican fighter who, you know, amazing chin and guts and just, you know, break your ribs. And, you know, that was who Barrera was. And then Pacquiao went out there and, and beat him up. Not just like, you know, stopped and knocked him out, but he beat him up. Like, that was unbelievable. And now I'm seeing Pacquiao with grays in his beard. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, where does, where's the time gone? You know? So, yeah, that's where he is in his career. Is This this will probably be his last fight, I believe, like, seriously. Be just because of his whole life over, like, the last 15 years or so, when he first, you know, ran for Congress and, you know, and then he became a senator. And now, you know, looking at the 2022 election in the Philippines, his whole life has been building towards either being the president or the vice president. So uh, if that happens, you know, that, that that should be the end. That should be the end. But, you know, who knows? Pack it out. But you think even at his age and his decline is still enough to be the favored fighter over Ugas? Oh, yeah. He's massively favored. And I even thought he had a real chance against Errol Spence because Spence is right there. Like, Spence is not a guy you have to go find. He's not going to. He's not Floyd Mayweather who can go out there and sort of box safely and pot shot you and grab you and, you know, that sort of thing and, and, and win rounds, you know, a la like, you know, Floyd or like late stage Bernard Hopkins. He's a guy who's right there. You know, it's not a bad style for Pacquiao. Um, and he's not, even though he has a very strong jab, he's not a physical guy. You know, he's not going to rough up an older man. Um, but Ugas, I don't think Ugas has the firepower to hold off someone like Pacquiao. Like Pacquiao, even at this age, you know, he's, he's always going to be Pacquiao, you know? So, uh, you know, he knows how to win fights and, uh, I, I think Manny should have too much to beat Ugas, but it also depends. Like, you know, there have been like, you know, people who speculate that, you know, that Ugas may have known a little bit earlier, but I, I, there's no way to know, you know, and switched his, you know, training. No one, no one can really know. So uh, I don't. I, I've seen Bernard Hopkins suggest that in an interview, but um, you know, it depends on how much experience Ugas has or how much preparation he's able to do against a southpaw. Um, so which, I think switching from a right-hander, right-hand opponent to a southpaw, the way that um, Ugas is is a lot harder uh, than what Manny was doing, switching from southpaw to a right-hander, because Manny hadn't fought southpaw in like a decade. Are there other fights on this card that you think deserve some attention? Mark McSayo. I I like Mark McSayo. Uh, really good kid. I mean, I think this would be an interesting fight. This could be a, sh- this could, this could be a real shootout. Um, uh, Mark McSayo, a featherweight, undefeated guy, but has never really gotten to that point where you're like, okay, this is the next champion. He's fighting Julio Ceja, you know, who's got a lot of power, uh, is a brawler, and won't be hard to find for Mixayo. So if Mixayo is able to sort of get him in front of him and, and make that fight work, yeah, you know, that, that could be a real barn burner. I thought that Mark Mixayo's fight, uh, I was ringside for this fight. Uh, it was one of the most, like, I mean, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, fight of the year, you know, 
And, you know, the Boxing Rights Association of America, you know, they only see the fights that are on the, the big networks. I was at ringside when he had, in 2016 when he had a six-round, like, street fight with Chris Avalos that was one of the best fights I'd ever seen in person. And it got no attention as, you know, fight of the year. But that should have been. And, you know, and, and Mark's a great guy. His wife, Frances, uh, I go way back with them. I was at Mark's pro debut. And I, he's 22-0 now. And we'll see if he's going to be able to uh, to get to the next level. Otherwise, if you like, you know, kind of like, you know, like brawls between faded former champions, Victor Ortiz versus Robert Guerrero could be fun. Like, you know, like just... Two guys who've seen better days, you know, you know, just kind of like throwing bombs at each other. You know, <laughs> it could be a good old man fight. The week after the Pacquiao-Ugas card, we have Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley on August 29th for Showtime. Before we even talk about this fight, can you give us your thoughts on this renaissance of celebrity slash exhibition boxing as far as if you think this is good or bad for boxing? Well, it's kind of a tough question to answer because is it good for boxing? Jake Paul is a very smart guy, and his brother is too. They're both very smart. Yeah, because they, while exploiting boxing, they also point out how much, how bad, you know, boxing is at, you know, highlighting some of its best talent. So Jake Paul, when the fight was announced with Tyrone Woodley, um, he, you know, he puts Amanda Serrano on the undercard and doesn't just say, oh, she's going to be fighting and you know, you're going to see her. He actually promotes her. He's like, he does like a photo shoot with her. And, and you know, Amanda Serrano, for what, you know, she's one of the best female fighters who's ever, who've ever lived. And yet boxing, you know, because of, I believe, chauvinism, sexism, and just a lack of creativity doesn't know how to promote its female talent the way that the UFC does, you know, um, or even Bellator. That's why you see a lot of like the top uh, female boxers have to moonlight, you know, as MMA fighters, you know, a lot of them, you know, do come from like kickboxing and, you know, and, and karate backgrounds, but like they have to go to these other forms of fighting because they don't get the respect and attention and the way that they should, because, Boxing is stuck in the 1960s. It's kind of the opposite for men, right? The men in MMA try to go over to boxing because the pay is better. Whereas in women's boxing, because women's boxing is so, let's say, unpopular, they are looking at MMA. Uh, yeah, I would say that's a good, that's a good, um, it's a fair comparison because um, with, you know, boxing is like, you know, free market capitalism on steroids. It's like, a, you know, it's whatever you can get and however you can get it that's that's the way it is whereas in um you know you, you kind of have like this almost like wwe style of like promotion and like where you're under contract to like you know the ufc or whatever and and they can control how much money you're going to make and you know you really you have no leverage because there, there is no other show in town they are the show and if you don't want to be there, okay, you know, uh, you sit on the sidelines for whatever, and you don't, you sit at home, you don't make a check. Uh, so it's it's really hard, I think, for UFC fighters and MMA fighters to to get the leverage that boxers are, which is like, you know, if a boxer is able to get out of a contract with a promotion, and then trust me, those a lot of these boxing promotional contracts can be pretty like you know one sided, and if you you know don't want to fight, they'll they'll sideline you and. 
we saw our guys like Andre Ward give up years of their career as a result. And, you know, it, it was almost like for Andre Ward, it was almost like, uh, not to compare the two situations because they were very different, but um, how Muhammad Ali lost, like, you know, three years of his prime, you know, because of his opposition to the Vietnam War or, or you know, boxing, you know, exhibitions uh, for the U.S. Army. Um, he took a stand, you know, whereas, you know, and Andre Ward was fighting his promoter and, you know, just wasn't going to do business with this guy and, you know, finally was able to extricate himself towards the end, but it was, it gave up a lot of years as a result. Um, and he, he retired undefeated. We, we, we don't know what he would have done in those years. So yeah, no, it's boxing is, you know, it's the wild west and you have a limited number of years to make money. And if you can make money in those years, uh, it's great. But, you know, you have so many of these very talented fighters who can be marketed. Because I actually think that the women in boxing are in many ways more marketable because, you know, they could, you know, they, they, a lot of them have these very interesting backstories and, um, you know, they, they're much more open than a lot of the men boxers are. A lot of the male boxers, you know, they're a little bit, uh, hesitant to show some of their, you know, vulnerability. Whereas that's not the case with, with a lot of the female boxers that I deal with. So um, I'm, I'm thinking about like someone like Heather Hardy, um, you know, Clarissa Shields. You know, a lot of these fighters, you know, that you, you can do some things with them. Amanda Serrano. So Jake Paul identified that, you know, and was like, yeah, you can say whatever you want about me, but here's Amanda Serrano, you know, who boxing, you know, uh, didn't do shit for, and I'm putting her on the card. What have you done for, you know, someone who's being overlooked, you know, uh, you know, lately? Do you cover these exhibition fights at all or do you treat it as a novelty that's adjacent to the sport that you cover? I mean, it's definitely adjacent to the sport. It's not like it has nothing to do with, you know, the actual like who's the best fighter. You know, it, there's nothing relevant to actual boxing about it. But um I do cover it because it is it is news. Like so, I was at the Mayweather, um, uh, the Mayweather Logan Paul fight, and but I, I took it for what it was. You know, this was you know, it, it was a clown show, sure, but you know, there is why why are people here? Why does anyone care about this? You know, and I wanted to sort of talk about that and what are the things that people are you know getting excited about like what, what what is it that brings the fight you know the fight fans you know they're not really fight fans the people who follow logan paul and jake paul they, they're fans of logan paul and jake paul not boxing and they'll never cross over um but why why do people want to see these guys and you know the the best that i can understand it's like they built this following through social media and youtube and you know i almost felt like i was being trolled because here I am, I drove down to Miami, and I, I took it as, this is what it is. I'm, I'm here to have a good time. I wrote a story afterwards for Vice where I said, you know, this is fucking stupid. Like, you know, this is, what are we do doing here? But I was being trolled because here I am at a press conference, and Logan Paul, and reporters are asking Logan Paul, What's, what are you going to do next? And, you know, do you want to fight, you know, like, you know, Manny Pacquiao? <laughs> like, and I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm in a Key and Peele sketch. You know, this is... This is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I have a master's degree, you know. Like, um, what am I doing here? But, uh, and you know, I—they're not dumb. They know what they're doing, 
Uh, and they're getting to live like boxing fantasy camp because of, you know, whatever it is that they're able to do in terms of bringing people to, you know, um, to a stadium. Uh, and it's, you know, I don't want to deride them as just like 15 year olds on Twitch. You know, it's, you know, yeah, a lot of them are, but, you know, they are very good at persuading their parents to pay for tickets. So it's whatever. Uh, they, these, these guys are really intelligent, but they expose, you know, the unspoken truth about boxing, which is that, um, you know, it, it's all about matchmaking. It, there's a sleight of hand with boxing. Like, you know, Jake Paul is fighting Tyron Woodley not to lose the fight, you know? Like, you can say whatever you want about Tyron Woodley's, you know, background as an MMA fighter. He's never been a boxer. So, yeah, they picked him because he's going to get knocked out, you know? And Jake Paul's going to say, look, I destroyed this, you know, whatever guy, you know, like uh, this MMA fighter, uh, just like I did to whoever was the other guy he did. And I destroyed, you know, Nate Robinson. Like, yeah, they're not boxers, you know? I, I remember interviewing Nate Robinson before the fight. How much boxing experience do you have? Uh, a couple of weeks. Wait, what? You know? Like, really? Oh, yeah. You know, I back in the day, I used to be like, you know, I put the gloves on my brothers in the you know, backyard. Like, this is being sanctioned as a professional fight? <laughs> like, and then he went in there and didn't know how to box, and people were surprised. Oh, Nate Robinson's going to beat him up. Nate Robinson is, you know, a basketball player. If they play basketball, Nate Robinson would probably destroy Jake Paul. Like, like I could say, yeah, I beat Deontay Wilder in chess because that's all I do is play chess. Like, doesn't mean I would beat him in a boxing match in his actual sport. You know, um, I think when you're talking about the Paul brothers, you know, and this is not to deride them or accuse them of anything, but you're talking about like this level of privilege that boxers the people who you know they started from like you know the lowest um levels of like amateur boxing and then fought their way to become like national champions and turn professional they can't write their ticket the way that the paul brothers can like the paul brothers are are huge physically huge guys and if you take them for who they are in terms of athletes they are real physical specimens like they're legit solid 200 pound 190 pound guys but we just saw jake paul released a video talking about javante davis is on my hit list i'm gonna beat javante davis javante davis fights at lightweight 104 or 140 pounds even i think and the paul brothers are like 190 200 pounds on what planet is that like oh like uh, I'm going to beat a guy 60 pounds lighter, and that's going to be something cool. Um, it's ridiculous. There are weight classes. These are, they're, you know, they're kind of bullies, right? But they can get away with it because their fans don't understand boxing. And they don't understand that, oh, yeah, no, there are weight classes for a reason. Like, if if Logan Paul was the same size as Floyd Mayweather, Floyd, you know, Floyd would have knocked him out, you know, the way that he did with Conor McGregor. And then Jake Paul at the press conference, he's like, oh, yeah, you hurt Floyd like Maidana. And like, um, I, think, I forgot who else he said hurt him. Um, like, and Shane Mosley. And not even Logan Paul was comfortable trying to run with that because of how ridiculous it was. But they're good at like, 
framing stuff as you know real right it's you know the it's really a, a clown show um and it speaks to their privilege that they're able to do all this stuff and you know no one you know no one no one looks at what's actually going on and say hey we need to stop this this is ridiculous this is this is diminishing what it means to be an actual um like professional boxer in this type of arena against the type of competition that he's facing right which is mostly people who've made their names and other things like how good is jake paul is he like a good club boxer or how would you rate him relatively i mean we won't know until he fights michael phelps so (laughs) i you know that's really the big challenge out there because you know jake paul doesn't have an olympic gold medal um i think that you know what looking at what he is you know he could be he could be a pretty good box. I don't I don't I don't think that he could. I mean I I don't know because I've never had to see him like actually go out there and box. But he's very strong. He knows how to punch. He's you know he's a puncher. Um, he's a solid guy. I think he would have to pick a weight class. You know, he's one seventy five or two hundred. He'd have to find. He'd have to either cut down or 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 fill in uh, to two hundred pounds. But I think that. He's a guy that if he, you know, he took him, he was a, you know, a, a, a guy from like Ohio and, and you built him right, you know, you could do something with him. Sure. Um, but he would eventually get chin. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way I see him because, you know, just looking at, you know, you could only be so strong for so long and then like, you don't move your head. But fighting Nate Robinson, a guy who had no business in a professional boxing ring and I forget who the other guy was, the UFC guy. Or... Ben Askren. Yeah, Ben Askren. I remember him from one championship. Ben was telling me how great he was. And I was falling asleep watching him. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, used to, I, used, I used to cover you know, MMA cards in the Philippines, and I saw him there. I was like, what is this? What am I watching? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, you know, the guy, Ben Askren, looked like he'd never seen a boxing match before. Uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, it's hard to tell, you know. He didn't pick Tyron Woodley because, you know, Tyron Woodley's going to test his boxing skills. He's, he's a guy with a name. He's going to, you know, Woodley's going to do whatever he can with the limited experience he has in boxing and some athleticism. And then he's going to, you know, take a nap. Like, Showtime is getting involved with these guys. Yeah. It's not even Triller. It's not even Triller. You know, it's Showtime, which, you know, had been the leader in boxing for a long time. But at the end of the day, you know, that just shows you how boxing is free market capitalism on steroids they you know they're like yeah we'll, we'll do business with these guys sure you know you want to yeah we'll even put on a woman's fight you know even though we don't care about women's boxing um uh, it's uh but they'll, they'll make some money with this and you know because there's woodley and people people like to see a circus you know and this is what it is it's a circus and uh you, you know the the boxing hardliners the boxing hardcore like like I, and I like to consider myself sort of a, a progressive-minded, you know, classical boxing, you know, observer. You know, like, you're, like, um, but at the same time, it's like I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, no, this has nothing to do with boxing. What are we? What are we doing here? When I was at, you know, ringside, and my, I, like, my, don't get me wrong, my nieces, they thought I was the coolest guy on the planet because I, I got to ask, you know, questions to Logan Paul. But you know, what else are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think? Tyron Woodley is coming into this fight kind of like Nate Robinson, where maybe he's not going to take it too seriously. He knows what he's going in there for, which is to lose to this guy. Not like 
they're intentionally going to throw the fight, but they know what's happening here. They know how the sausage is made and they're just going in there for the payday. I think he's taking it as seriously as he can. Um, that said, um, what is his, you know, his background, you know, what, what's his, what's his, you know, in terms of boxing, you know, he was a, he was an amateur wrestling star. Um, I don't know. Like if, if there were takedowns in this fight, you know, I would have to, you know, make uh, Woodley a, a favorite, but there aren't. And, you know, he was, and also he was a smaller guy. Like, you know, he was fighting, first off, he's like five nine, and like, he was fighting at like one seven. So this is more of the Paul brothers fighting smaller guys from other sports um, because they can, because they are the cash cows, you know, so to speak. They, you know, so, um, yeah, no, he, I think he'll try his best for sure, but He's not a he's not a boxer, you know. There's only so much you can learn about boxing in a couple of weeks, uh, and you know, I I imagine Will's I, I I can't imagine him doing worse than Ben Askren, a guy who like didn't even know how to spell boxing. I don't think <laughs> like it was. I actually I remember he was like favorite at one point. The odds are pretty close, and someone was telling me at the wild card gym, this guy doesn't know how to box. What is he doing? How you know this guy? Something's wrong with him. You're like you know he can't box you know so um yeah i I don't think it'll be as bad as that but um yeah he'll he'll take a nap at some point in the fight i think speaking of mma and boxing what did you think of anderson silva as a boxer well anderson silva people don't realize he had a boxing background yeah you know he he was a pro boxer i believe before he was in a pro mma fighter he wasn't like good or anything like that but um there were you know he was like the striker of like you know because all right, so back in the day, people used to call like talk about like how Chuck Liddell was this great striker, and then I would watch him and like this guy doesn't know how to punch. Um, but like Anderson Silva was a guy that knew how to throw punches uh, in a correct way, and he had the sort of athleticism that I think would have lended in itself to boxing. Um, so he could have been a boxer he, if he, you know, he had a team behind him that knew how to get him to the next level, and he pursued boxing. He could have been a boxer, uh, but I, I don't. How do I put it? Like, he fought a Julio Chavez Jr., who probably shouldn't be boxing anymore. Uh, he's abused his body in terms of just not taking care of himself, going up and down in weight, not training. And, uh, you know, he's had some issues, you know, outside of the ring, you know, in his personal life. Uh, you know, um, you know, he was a spoiled rich kid. You know, he's the son of a legend. And, you know, yeah, he, if, if Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., was not Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. It was just like, I don't know, like some other guy and had all the gifts he had, but none of the privilege. He would have been a great fighter. He would have been, you know, instead he was handed a world championship by the WBC because the president of the WBC is like his godfather, right? So <laughs> no, that's real talk. That's what they did. They, they, they gave Sergio Martinez a fake belt, you know, uh, they called him, I think the diamond champion or something like that. And, you know, and then uh, and then they made the regular championship. You know, the WBC, like the real, you know, actual championship. They made it vacant, and he got to fight Sebastian's Beak. You know, who was a guy who should never have been at a world championship level. He was handpicked because Julio Chavez Jr. He had he had the unique ability of being able to lose to Julio Chavez Jr. And that's why he was put in that situation. And then they didn't make the Martinez Chavez fight for a long time. And then Martinez eventually boxed the shit out of Chavez Jr. When they did fight and. Uh, which just shows that you know he was a fake champion. Um, but yeah, at that the Chavez Jr. that 
Anderson Silva fought was a shadow of himself. He was, you know, uh, like Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Um, should not be like reported on anymore. I think his fights because they're, I think he's lost so much of his, like he had lost to a guy named Mario Abel Cazares and then he quit in his corner against Danny Jacobs. You know what I mean? Like, you know, then Anderson Silva, you know, you know, hadn't fought a boxing match, and, you know, I think since like the Clinton, like, you know, years <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's sort of, you know, he gets beat by him. Uh, I think, you know, Chavez Jr. has been reduced to what he always was, which is a, a name, you know, as someone who happened to you know be related to a famous boxer who was beloved. So you think it tells you more about Julio Chavez Jr. never lived up to his potential more than it does about how good Anderson Silva is transitioning to boxing. Well, think of it this way. Like, Anderson Silva was, you know, 10 pounds lighter than Julio Cesar Chavez, who had like 60, you know, almost 60 pro fights or something like that. And Anderson Silva was able to win a split decision over him in a sport that, you know, he entered a record of one and one, you know? So, yeah, I think that really just shows you more about Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., who, um, you know, even like, I'll tell you, like there were moments in the Danny Jacobs fight where I thought, okay, he's being competitive. This could, this could be good, you know? And, um, but he never took boxing seriously. Never had to because like, he's sort of like the Tommy boy of, of boxing. And like, remember when, uh, David Spade is like, you know, just berating him saying, Oh, I'm big Tom Callahan's son. You know, I could be a big dumb animal. Right. You know, like, um, like that's sort of what Chavez Jr. has always been like, you know. Hey, I'm Chavez Jr. You know, don't you know who my dad is? And you know, put me in a put me in a pay per view fight, and um, didn't respect you know the opportunity that he was given, um, and didn't respect the talent that he has. Like you know, he got a lot further than uh, Hector Camacho Jr. did, uh, but Camacho Jr. was another guy, uh, similar situation, had amazing ability. Like he could have been better than his father, but his father, you know, came up hard and, you know, and, and knew how to fight. And, you know, and there was a time where he took his career seriously and got something out of it. Hector Camacho Jr. never took his career seriously. If he had, if he had grown up the way his father did, you know, without having like a famous father to fall back on, you know, he could have been a, something great. Like I remember seeing him hit the speed bag and it was like, it wasn't even moving. It was so fast and his reflexes and, um, even when he was an undefeated guy, you could tell he didn't take the sport seriously because he was letting guys stay in fights that they should have been gone. And, you know, he was more of a puncher than his dad, I think, had more, more speed and was bigger. So, uh, in some ways they're, they're very similar. Like to get a only guy who was like the son of, of, of a champion and, and was able to really do something great was probably like Corey Spinks. And that's because Corey Spinks you know, didn't grow up in like with a lot of privilege. You know, Corey Spinks, you know, even though his father was Leon Spinks, you know, Leon Spinks had a lot of problems in his life and, you know, wasn't, you know, able to, you know, kind of give Corey Spinks a sheltered life. You know, Corey Spinks came from St. Louis in a rough neighborhood and learned how to box and, you know, and didn't have his father, like, kind of micromanaging his career to make him fight like him. Like, Corey Spinks' style was nothing like his father's style. So I think that also helped because, like, you know, you see, like, Joe Frazier trying to make Marvis Frazier uh, box like him, even though Marvis Frazier is a tall guy who can box from the outside and was a really good boxer at the national level. 
Um, but you know, um, anyone who trained with Joe Frazier, be it you know Marvis Frazier or Burt Cooper, had to default to being Joe Frazier Jr. You know, so yeah, it, it's not great for you know to you to have um, a famous boxing father if you want to be a boxer, if you want to be a lawyer or something like that. Yeah, you know they, they can afford you know pretty good tuition. Now, are there any other fights on this Paul versus Woodley card that you think listeners ought to pay attention to? Um, I think definitely if you uh, want to see boxers uh, like, you know, who are underrated, Amanda Serrano. Hell yeah. She's, you know, a very exciting, hard punching fighter. Um, And and I'll tell you something about, you know, about, you know, women's boxing. I I didn't grow up as like this progressive minded person. It's like, oh, yeah, no, you need to you know, pay attention to women's boxing. You know, there's, you know, I was sort of like, I came from that, you know, sort of boxing boys club mentality, like, you know, in the gym, you know, 99% of the people in the gym are, are, are men and, you know, we're saying stupid things. And, you know, I didn't really get into women's boxing until uh, I I got. Uh, I, you know, the old, you know, magazine editor was this guy named Mike Rosenthal. And he hits me up. He's like, hey, Ryan, you want to write about the women's box? You know, we want to write the women's boxing comp for Ring Magazine? Uh, no, he said, he said first, are you the guy who, who reached out to me and um, to, to take over the women's boxing comp? I said, no. He's like, oh, you want to do it anyways? Yeah, sure. Because like, I'm like 25 years old and I want to have a monthly comp in Ring Magazine. Sure. Um, and, you know, it turned out it was a mistaken identity. It was another person who had reached out and I wound up getting the job. But. Before, you know, and then I started talking to some of these female boxing and I realized, oh my goodness, there's, there's, there's so much about them that, you know, people don't understand. They don't get it, that these are um, fighters who take the same risks as men. They're getting punched in the head, you know, you know, with gloves and, and they're doing it for less pay. They have promoters who are not creative in, in promoting them and they have to sort of sell tickets by themselves uh, and, and, and go out there and be their own publicist because the boxing, the people who run boxing have no idea what to do with them. Um, and also, I have to credit Maureen Shea because when I first started covering boxing, you know, I, I sort of over the years I became a lot more open minded and progressive about things. And I remember going up to Maureen Shea, telling her straight up, "I don't like women's boxing, but you could fight. You know, like you you know how to box. Like that's I can appreciate a good boxer." Um, and then just over the years, I kind of morphed into this person who like sees you know the sacrifices and the the exploitation of, of female boxers and i've sort of become like this like and that's my beat I, I in a lot of ways i cover women's boxing i see you know very interesting stories uh from them you know and, and i appreciate their struggles and you know just the you know the struggles of you know working people you know when you talk about boxers there's no you know fighters more exploited and vulnerable than female boxers like every boxer i don't care if you're Floyd Mayweather junior you're an underdog in life because you've had to go through so much to get to that point that you're like, you know what, I'm going to literally fight for my, you know, fight for my way out of, I'm going to fight my way out of poverty. And when you go to female boxers, you know, that's, it's just so much more, you know, you're, so much more that they're underdogs because even world champions have to have day jobs. Uh, but yeah, uh, wrestling undercard, you know, um, yeah, probably Charles Conwell. He was in a U.S. Olympian in 2016. Uh, I think he's, a guy who's ready, you know, in the next fight or two to fight for a world championship at 154 pounds. And, you know, there's Tommy Fury. Um, he's there. I guess you can watch him. Uh, they're talking about him fighting, you know, one of the Paul brothers. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> he's, I think, related. <laughs> he's related to uh, Tyson Fury. 
we'll see what, what, what else he has going from besides that. All right, Ryan, appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, on you know, the Ring Magazine, uh, both the website, uh, ringtv.com, and the monthly magazine. I write the Philippine Boxing column. So if you like um, reading about uh, just uh, obscure Filipino 112-pound fighters, that's where you can read that every month. Um, you could find me. Uh, I have a new uh, daily boxing web show that's starting uh, called Round by Round. Uh, that's Filipino boxing show. It launches on uh, August twenty third, starting uh, you know all like the top Filipino boxing uh, analysts and reporters, uh, Bill Velasco, Boyd Sison, th- th- those uh, kind of you know very respected reporters in the Philippines. Um, you could find me at Seven Eleven. I'm there a lot. You know, I you know. <laughs> I hang out there a lot. That's where you can find me. Um, yeah, <laughs> you can find me all over the place. Uh, so yeah, I, Sam, I just really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on this podcast. And I just want to say that um, I really respect the work that you put out there. Your Twitter is like one of my favorite Twitter accounts. I often like share your tweets with some of my friends who are not even in combat sports because you just have like, some, some really spicy hot takes. And I'm just like, wow. Sam really doesn't give a fuck, you know? Um, <laughs> and I, I, I just, uh, I, I wish I could just, you know, be as, you know, just honest as you are about the world. Like, but you have a, a very informed perspective um, on things and you, you speak out on a lot of important issues, uh, you know, in, in combat sports, including sexism, racism, um, things that, you know, I think need to be addressed. Uh, you know, the, the ugly secrets of combat sports. A lot of the things that you talk about in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, I see them in boxing. You know, I, you know, so it's, um, I, 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 I see how, you know, there are so many similarities that the struggles, I think that, you know, people who um, are open-minded and, and, and are looking around and realizing, hey, something's wrong here, that, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of similarities in the two worlds that we occupy. So, um, I just appreciate you kind of uh, being that voice and, you know, and just speaking up for things, uh, including colonialism that uh, I touch on sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really go in and like, and you, and you, you say, you, you say the things that like a lot of times are on my mind, but I don't say them. Uh, so I appreciate you, uh, you know, kind of just going out there and just going ham. Yeah, well, you got a job to consider, so <laughs> I'm just a dude on the internet, you know. Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, it's good to be just a dude on the internet because then you can just say things like, "Yeah, I know," but like you, uh, you, re- I, I really respect the work that you do, and this podcast is very important, and uh, I really hope that more uh, people listen to it because um, the perspective that you share uh, is not. I mean, there, there are other. Like younger in, in boxing, you know, especially like they're younger, progressive, uh, you know, voices, you know, who kind of, you know, it mirrors the, you know, the demographic, you know, shifts, you know, splits that you see in, uh, in society, you know, in terms of their views. And some of us, we, we talk, but not, you know, as openly and, you know, take calling out some of the things and people in the industry. Um, but we, we do, you know, kind of, you know, congregate you know in dms and things like that and, and we talk about some of the things that are, are wrong with boxing but like you're out there as like a, a, a one person newsletter like hey sos this is going on in bjj and we need to address it so i respect the hell out of you for that 
Oh, it means a lot coming from you, Ryan. Well, thank you. And I hope you will come back on the show sometime. Anytime, Sam. Anything for you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.